I'd like to wish all of the moms a happy Mother's Day today. I hope you're having a great time that you are being pampered and treated and cared for. Uh, I encourage you. Usually what we do on Mother's Day is we, uh, we do a, a photo booth and we get pictures with moms and their kids and their families. Uh, of course, we can't do that today. So would you do me a favor? Would you take a picture with mom today or with grandma and would you post that to social media with the hashtag Thrive Glendora? We'd love to just celebrate with you. Also, maybe share uh, in the comments a favorite memory or a story, a funny story, or something heartwarming about moms. And uh, we'd just love to, to, again, celebrate with you. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over moms today. If you're, if you're sitting close to your mom or your grandma, would you go ahead and lay hands on her? And we're going to pray. Jesus, thank you for moms. And pray today that they would feel blessed and honored and enriched by you, that they would sense your love and your joy and your pleasure over their lives. And I ask today, uh, Lord, that you would encourage and, and strengthen. Lord, I pray especially for moms of little kids who have tons of, tons of energy, Lord, that you would strengthen them and, and give them, Lord, the, their wherewithal to keep going. Uh, may today just be a wonderful day of rest over them. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to two places. We're going to be in the book of John and the book of 2 Timothy today. We've been in a series called God Is since the beginning of the year, and we've been exploring and asking this question, who is God? And we've been asking that question, not of ourselves or the people around us or even the world around us. We've been asking that question of the word. We've been going to the Word of God and ask, asking this question, what does the Word of God tell me about who God is? It's His Word. It's the best place to answer that question. So along with that question, we've also been asking, what do I believe about God? And why do I believe what I believe about God? And, and another important question is this, where did that belief come from? Where did it originate? And maybe the most important question of, of all of these other than who is God is, is what I believe about God true? Is what I believe actually true? You know, there's a lot of things in our lives that are vying for, competing for our attention. Uh, advertising, the media, news, politics, and even now in, in the healthcare world, there's all kinds of messages that are being thrust upon us, pushed on us, trying to, trying to get our attention, and are usually promoted with this idea. This is true. You should believe me. You should believe us. You should buy this product, vote for this candidate, or, or make this decision because what we are presenting is the truth. It's factual. It is real. In fact, the dictionary defines truth that way. It says this, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. Webster's also defines it this way. It says, it is the body of real things, events and facts, actuality. And finally, it says this, a transcendent fundamental or spiritual reality. But here's the question. How do you know that what you know is true? Or how do you choose what to believe? How, how do you look at the options in front of you and go, this is the right one, or that is the right one? Who do you choose to believe and who do you choose not to believe? What's the right thing? 
It reminds me of, as I was preparing for today, of navigation. You know, back before we had GPS, we had these things called maps. You remember those? You ever on a road trip and you were the one assigned with folding the map, which was, you know, an impossible task to get it back into the right shape? We had maps. We would reference maps in order to find our way from one place to another. Of course, before maps, there were just compasses. Before, you know, we, we, we would navigate using true north or magnetic north, rather, in, in finding our way to where we needed to be. Uh, and even before that, uh, those who, sailors who would set out on the oceans and explore the world used the stars to, to try and find their way. See, in order to get from where you are to where you want to be or you need to be, you have to know two things. Let me say that again. If, in order to get from where you are to where you need to be, you need two things. You have to know two things. The first is this. You need to know where you are. You can't get to where you need to be or at least figure out how to get to where you need to be if you don't know where you are. And you can't get to where you need to be if you don't know what there is what that destination is. And so you need to know where you are and you need to know where you're going, where your destination is. So in the realm of navigation, and we'll go back to that analogy, in order to figure out where you are, you have to look at a fixed known location, a fixed known position. For sailors, Uh, Back before all of this modern technology, they did. They used the stars because the stars didn't change. They were fixed in the sky. They could count on them. And they, based on the stars and the alignment of the stars, they would use their equipment to be able to figure out where they were and how to chart their course to where they needed to be. Uh, You had, in the case of, of a compass, if you were a Boy Scout, if you got trained in how to use a compass, you figured out how, if you were in the woods or, or out hiking, how to use that tool, you know, with that needle that would point to magnetic north. It would point the same direction. And, you know, someone at some point figured that out, that you could use a compass to find that fixed point on the planet and then at the north point of, that, of our planet and figure out the direction that you needed to go. And compasses, of, of course, not just used by Boy Scouts, but used in, in vehicles, in, in planes, in, in ships, and in all kinds of, of different ways. Uh, you, one of the ways you could figure out is where you are is by looking at physical landmarks, mountains and rivers and lakes and trees and all kinds of things. Uh, of course, you could just stop and ask for directions, but Whoever does that, right? We don't stop and ask for directions. You could look at street signs. They are fixed objects, usually put in cement on the corner of two streets so you can look and read those names and go, that's where I am. Or in the case of pilots, they use beacons. They have navigation beacons that are set up all over the world that the equipment on an aircraft can then triangulate. It picks up the beacon signal from three different beacons and times how long it takes that signal to move back and forth between the beacon and the aircraft, and they can determine exactly where they are on the planet. Now, of course, GPS has changed a lot of these things um, because now satellites, you pull out your phone, and a satellite signal bounces down to your phone and tells you exactly where you are on the planet. But I know in so many of these cases, the pilots and and, and uh, sailors and those, you know, e- even even traveling on the road, 
There's, there has to be backup systems. There has to be other ways um, of finding things. I remember when I was in college, I delivered parts here in Los Angeles, uh, all over Los Angeles County. And so what I had back before GPS, I had a Thomas guide. Remember those? Thomas guides, you know, pages and pages of maps, and you had to find exactly where you were. But here's the thing. Once you have the information, once you have the data that you need, where I am and where I'm going, you can then chart your course. You can figure out how to get from where you are to where you're going. Well, this is no less true in our journey with the Lord. That we can look to God to know where we are and where we need to be. See, in order to know who we are, not just where we are, but who we are, our identity, we have to look at a fixed reference point. A reference point that does not change. I want to read to you out of John 14, verses 6 through 7. This is a point here where Jesus is having a conversation with some of his disciples, and they're asking him about where he's going and how they can follow him. And he, and he says this to them in verse 6. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He makes a statement about who he is, about his purpose, about him being a fixed reference point for us, that he is our way, he is absolute truth, and he is the one who gives life. John 18, verses 36 through 37, we find Jesus standing before Pilate. Of course, Jesus has now been accused by the Jews of making claims about being the Messiah or being the king of the Jews. And and so Jesus is having to make his defense before Pilate, which, of course, he he doesn't really defend himself. He just kind of answers the questions. And Pilate has has asked him a question about, are you a king? Are you a king? And Jesus says this in verse 36. It says, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Listen to the statement that Jesus makes. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. That's a pretty huge statement. I know growing up and and for years, if you would ask me, why did Jesus come? I would have said, well, he came to save people from their sins, which is absolutely true. He came to, to reconcile man to God, which is absolutely true. But it's so amazing here in this moment, as Jesus is facing the cross, he makes this statement about his purpose. I came into the world to testify to what is true, which means there's a lie. If there's truth, there's a lie. 
And he has come to take a stand against what is untrue so that people would see what is true. Our theme today, along with the God Is series, is this. God is truth. God is truth. And God is not a truth. He is not the, an option in amongst a sea of choices. He's not an optional truth amongst many truths. God is truth. Jesus is truth. Absolutely. Now, to put it another way, say it like this. Jesus is the definition and embodiment of ultimate reality. You remember Merriam-Webster used words like fact, reality, actuality. When Jesus says he is the truth, he is making the statement, I am the definition and embodiment of what is ultimately real. It doesn't get more real than Jesus. And here's the encouraging thing. He doesn't change. Jesus does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is our fixed reference point. He's the one that we can look to when we need direction. And can I tell you, we need a lot of direction. You need direction. I need direction. The world is needing, in need of, direction. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, and we're going to start reading in verse 14 in just a second. This letter written to a young man, named, young man named Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Paul writes this letter to a guy he cares about, this man that he cares about very deeply. Timothy was a young leader in the church, and he was working to lead the church in the early days as the church was just getting formed and, and growing and, and, and learning who they are and what they're called to do and be in Jesus Christ. What's so amazing to me is that we're really no different in so many ways to the early church and the early believers, that there's things that they got wrong that we still get wrong today. And so here's what Paul writes to Timothy uh, as a word of encouragement and instruction. It says this in verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I'm going to pause here for a second. Paul says to Timothy, keep reminding. Why would you keep reminding someone of something? Well, because they keep forgetting. And the early church was forgetful. The church today is forgetful. We forget things. The, the, the word here and the way that Paul phrases this is, is a present imperative, which means this needs to keep happening. This reminding needs to just be an ongoing thing. It's not one and done. You have to keep reminding them, and we have to keep reminding them. Reminding them of what? Well, stop fighting and arguing about words. Stop quarreling about words. It is of no value. And, and listen to what Paul says. It ruins those who listen. And we, we get into debates and arguments and quarrels, and, and there's two people, one on this side and one on that side, and, and both become immovable objects. Both are convinced that they are right, that what they believe is true, and, there, and there's no moving. And so it just becomes a, a needless, useless argument. Paul says, don't do that. It just brings destruction. 
It, it just tears people down. It only ruins those who, listening, who listen. It's interesting to me in looking at church history that so much of the division that exists between not only in the, in, in the church and, and in the body of Christ, but even those who've rejected didn't do so because of Jesus. It happened because his followers start fighting with each other. Theologians and people who would differ and differ that differ on different points of theology would get into such battles with each other that the world around would say, you know, we, we want anything to do with that mess. Paul here offers this warning. Don't do that. Don't get into those quarrels. Don't argue about words. Then he says to Timothy, correctly handle the word of truth. Do your best to be one who correctly handles the word of truth, the word about Jesus, the gospel. Handle it well. Now, what I'm saying is that, not, not saying is that you shouldn't have discussions and, and, and even engage in dialogue. But there comes a point where discussion devolves into an argument. And we see this in the body of Christ. We see this in the church. And God says, don't do that. Because it's not just destructive within the church. It becomes destructive on the outside as well for those who would be looking in. He goes on to say in verse 16, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. And he says among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Let's unpack that a little bit as well. Godless chatter. Again, this is the quarreling that we talked about before. It's interesting that godless chatter about God leads to ungodliness. It's ironic. Godless chatter about God leads to ungodliness. That we need to honor the Lord in the way we discuss him and talk about him even to each other. Can you imagine, though, these two guys, they're named in Scripture as an example of what not to do. And it's, it's, a, it's a big deal that their names are listed because in other places, Paul says, hey, there are some or there are those, but here he actually names them. He says, these two guys are bad news. Why is this such a big deal? Why, why did scripture record the example of these two? What was their error? Well, it says they departed from the truth. They departed from what was real. See, they believed that there was no resurrection of the body or it had already taken place and what you saw is what you got, uh, which really came from the Greek philosophies of the day. And it stood in contrast with the teaching, the core beliefs of Christianity, which of course is this, that Jesus rose from the dead. But what they were teaching is that was not the fact, that was not the reality. And to deny the resurrection of Jesus to deny that his body was broken and beaten and then raised again is to deny the essence and the core of who we are as Christ followers. It's at the very center, denying the work of Jesus. And Paul said, you know, this is not acceptable. He says that it spreads like gangrene. And we understand in the midst of everything we're go we have going on in the world around us, the spread of disease. It's what kind of the focal point of everything is right now but you got to understand for them in those days gangrene was a death sentence if you had gangrene there were no antibiotics there were no uh, you know medicines and and treatments that w would help you it was essentially a death sentence 
But why was this spreading? Why was this even being considered by people inside of the church? Well, it's simply this. It was easier to believe the Greek philosophies of the day than to believe about the work of Jesus. Well, why was that easier? Well, to understand the the, the death and resurrection and that the, the resurrection of the physical body actually stood in contrast to what the popular teaching of the day was. And so what they did is they kind of took the best of Christianity and the best, what they thought was the best of Christianity and the best of the teaching of that day, and they combined it and tried to make something new out of it. But here's the, here's the reality. Mixing or diluting truth with the current popular ideas and world tooth, world worldviews rather, does not produce truth. Let me say that again: mixing or diluting truth with whatever the current or prevailing ideas or worldviews views are doesn't produce truth. Truth just is. The truth of God's word just is. It does not change. So Paul addresses this head on. He goes after it big time. Why? Why was this such a big deal for Paul? Well, here's why. Because if we lose sight of who Jesus truly is, if we lose sight of who he is, we lose sight of ultimate reality. We lose sight of our fixed point of reference. And what happens when that happens? What's the result? We become lost. We can't find our ways our way. Jesus made these tr truth statements about himself. John 8, 31 through 32. To the, Jew, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This passage is one of the misu most misused and misquoted passages of, of scripture uh, ever. You've probably heard it quoted in movies and TV shows and other places. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But of course, Jesus is not just making up some kind of truth. It's not just a truth that is convenient. It's not something that's manufactured and saying, oh, well, this is truth. What he's doing is talking about himself. He's making this statement. If you know and listen to what I say, you will know me. You will know the truth. If you listen to my teachings, if you believe and hold to the things that I've taught you, you are really, truly my disciples. Then you will know me. You will know the truth. And when you have a relationship with the truth, when you're engaged with the person of Jesus Christ, you will be set free. So the truth is not a concept here. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy or an ideology Truth here is the person of Jesus Christ, our immovable object, our fixed point of reference. In John 3, 19 through 21, Jesus says this. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So what we often do is take a passage like this and, and then we apply it. 
to other people. We go, well, who around me is living in darkness and needs to come into the light? You know, that person or those people or that church or that group, man, they really need to come into the light. Whatever they're doing really needs to be exposed. What we don't do often enough, though, is go, God, would you apply that to my life? Where are the areas of my life that are hidden in darkness, that are not, have not been brought into the, the truth of your light? Where are the places where I'm not living according to your truth, in line with your word, in line with your heart and who you are? God, would you bring me into the light? And here's the thing. Paul says that those who live in the darkness, they, they hate the light. Why? Because there's a fear that they're going to be exposed. You know what I love about the heart of God, and we've talked about this, that he is gracious, he is loving, he's patient and kind, that God's heart to, to bring you into the light is not to shame you and expose you, it's to bring healing and restoration in your life. And so the invitation of the Lord, the, the loving, beckoning, calling of Jesus to you would be come into the light, live according to the truth of who he is, according to the truth of his word and allow him to reveal those things and bring wholeness in those places so you can live according to the truth of his word. Second Timothy, we'll go back to what Paul was saying to Timothy here. In Second Timothy 3, in the next chapter, in verse 14, Paul writes this to Timothy and he says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced, become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, what Paul is saying here to Timothy and the encouragement to us is this. Timothy had a fixed point of reference. He had something that grounded him, and that something was the holy scriptures that had been taught to him by trusted people. In, in his case, it was his mother and his grandmother, which is absolutely appropriate on a Mother's Day to honor Timothy's mother and grandmother who poured into him the holy word of God from when he was an infant. And what does Paul say? It says, he says that it made him wise, not in a puffed up pride, prideful way, like I know more than you. The wisdom that was the result of that was the wisdom to be able to look to Jesus, to recognize Jesus. You know, the Bible says, Jesus says himself that there are those who saw him and didn't recognize him because they were so busy looking at their own ideas and the ideas of the world, buying into the flavor of the day, that the ideas of the time, the best presented arguments, right? And they, they, they just, they got suckered in so that when truth actually showed up, they didn't recognize him. But Timothy had been raised in such a way that he knew the word of God. He knew the truth and it made him wise so that when the time of salvation, when that opportunity came, Timothy saw Jesus and received him and committed his life to Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say this. He says, all scripture is God breathed 
all scripture, the whole of words, God, God's word, the whole of the Bible is God's word. It is truth. It is his truth. It is God breathed. It is active. It is alive. It is spirit filled. <coughs> Excuse me. And it is moving today in our lives. See, Paul goes on to say that it is useful, that God's word is useful. Now, I'm not talking about useful like that appliance that you bought or that tool that you bought on a whim because it was on sale. You got a coupon and you're like, oh, I really need that thing. Maybe you saw the infomercial and you're like, I really need that thing. And you used it two or three times and now it's sitting in a closet somewhere not being used. Not that kind of useful. It's useful like having a compass when you're lost in the woods, if you knew how to use a compass. It's useful like when you go overboard and someone throws you a life ring or a life preserver. It's that kind of useful. It is life-saving, life-altering useful. So what does Paul say that the, the word of God, that the truth of who God is, because that's what this is. It's God's truth. What does he say that it's useful for? He said it is Useful for teaching. Why would you teach some, something to someone? Why would you need to be taught something? Well, because you don't know it. And can I tell you what, when you don't know something, that's called ignorance. If you're ignorance, we use that, and you're like, you're so ignorant, like a, a slam or a, an insult. But really what it is, is if you don't know something, you don't know it. It's just a fact. And so you go to school, you go to college, you go to university, you get a degree, you get an education. Why? So you can be taught things you didn't know before. And so they can become a part of your life. So, so Paul says the Bible is useful. God's word, his truth is useful for teaching you so that you're not ignorant. So you, you're not ignorant of the things of God. That when you understand God's word, when you immerse yourself in God's word, when you feed yourself and, and read his word, what it says, he teaches you and you stop being ignorant. You start understanding who he is. He's, he goes on to say that God's word is useful for rebuking. Why would you need to be rebuked? Well, because we sometimes get it wrong. I get it wrong, you get it wrong. What is it? Well, fill in the blank. I think we get everything wrong from time to time, especially when it comes to walking with Jesus. I'm not always loving. I'm not always gracious. I'm not always kind. I'm not always patient. I, I don't always exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes my attitudes are prideful and hurtful, and I get it wrong. And what we need when we're, we're getting it wrong is to be put back where we need to be. We need to be rebuked. And I think there's such a negative connotation here, even with this word. Well, don't, don't rebuke me. But sometimes when you're headed to a cliff, maybe if you're, you know, visiting the Grand Canyon and your child is running to the edge, you're not going to use your soft, quiet voice and say, now, please come back. No, you're going to, there's going to be a harsh rebuke. Get back from there. Why? Because there's life-saving that takes place in the midst of a rebuke. There are times where you will read and no doubt have read scripture where you read something and it cuts deep that there's a rebuke from the Lord, not again, not to shame, but as a reminder that we're off course, that we're not where we're supposed to be, which leads into the next one. He says it's useful for correcting. Once you've been rebuked, what happens next? 
God brings us back to where we need to be. He gets us back on course. When you have your GPS going and you take a wrong turn, what, what happens? It tells you recalculating. Let's get you back to where you need to be. God's word is useful for correcting and getting us back to where we need to be. And then he says that God's word is useful for training in righteousness. Why? Because God has big plans for you. He has amazing plans for your life. He has plans that he's known before you were born, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and give you a future, as Jeremiah says. He has big plans for you. And because he sees the whole picture, he not only knows the past and the present, he also knows what's coming. And he knows what you need to be equipped for. He knows what training you need so that you will be ready to do the things that he has called you to do. I'd said earlier, in order to, to, to get somewhere, you have to know where you are. And I think so many of us go through life going, God, what's your plan for me? And God's going, wait a second. Let's first get grounded. Let's, let, let me help you understand who you are first before we get to this place. I went through a season in my life where God had to just speak into my life, almost yelling into my heart in a very gentle, loving way, saying, Barry, I care about you for who you are, not about what you do. I care about who you are. I love you for who you are, not because of what you do. And so training for us needs to be this understanding that I'm being trained not so that I can do stuff for God and make him happy, but that when I understand who I am and who I belong to, what my identity is and who that fixed reference point is in my life, then he can start building things into my life, into my character, into my e equipping of my talents, my abilities, my spiritual gifts to prepare me for the things he has for me. And Paul says that you would lack nothing. What a great statement. God's desire is that you wouldn't lack anything and, th and that his word will provide for you everything that you need. Do you see where this is going? The statement is this. The word of God is absolutely essential in your life. Now, if you're anything like me, I'd hear a sermon like this and be like, oh, I know what this is. This is the start reading your Bible every day sermon. You need to be reading your Bible. And I heard those all my life going, growing up. If you're not in the word, well, there's an element of truth to that. A yes and a no. But it's possible to start reading the word of God just to check a box and say, I did it. Out of that performance, that doing for God. But really, God's word is an invitation to know him. In, in fact, Jesus said that. If you know me, you will know me. You can know me. His desire is that you know him. And that when you know him, you will want to know him more. You will want to press in more. That you want to understand his heart and his desire for your life to keep your eyes fixed on him. C.H. Spurgeon, the famous pastor and preacher, was asked this question, what's more important, reading your Bible or praying? And he responded by saying, that's like asking what's more important, breathing in or breathing out. We understand this, that spiritual disciplines, reading, prayer, worship, fasting, Silence and solitude are all essential in the life of the believer because they draw us into the presence of God. They invite the presence of God to surround us for our eyes to be fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
But can I tell you today, the word of God is essential. You have to know the word because if you don't know the word, you're going to believe every other thing that comes across your phone, your computer, the newspaper, every other idea that is spoken about and presented as truth. If you don't know the truth, you run the risk of being taken captive, you and I both. See, in the midst of uncertain times, let me ask you this question. What reference points are you looking to? What are you looking at? In the midst of the uncertainty of the season that we're living in, what about this? What about coronavirus? When's things going to get back to normal? When can we go, go back to, to school? When can we go back to church? When can we gather with our friends? When are these things going to be lifted? And you see just that anxiety building in our culture. My question would be this, for, for you and for me, what are you looking to as a reference point, as an anchor point, as a fixed point? that you can get your bearings. How are you determining where you are and where you are going? Where do you look first? If it's anything other than God, for any of us, we're in trouble. We have to look to him first. A friend of mine shared this this week and it really impacted me and I wanted to pass this along. Uh, He made this statement, he said, in his life, he's adopted a rule, uh, a, a guideline for his own spiritual disciplines, and it's this, scripture before screen, scripture before screen. And what he said was, before he looks at his phone, before he opens his computer, before he does anything that, that allows the outside world to come in, which we understand in this day and time is, you know, it's our phones, it's our iPads, it's our, our televisions, it's those those portals to the ideas of the world just flooding in before he does any of that he turns to the word of god and he 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 sees what god has to say listens to what god would be speaking to him understands who god is and i felt so challenged by that and i wanted to encourage all of us in fact to challenge us as a congregation if you're not a regular part of thrive church if you've found us today for the first time. First of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But this challenge extends to you as well. And here's the challenge. I'm, I'm going to challenge us for one week. I'm going to ask for one week that we would set that same goal for ourselves, that every day before we looked at any kind of screen, any kind of email, any kind of social media, any kind of news or games, that we would start by looking to the Word of God, that we would look at the truth God's truth, the truth of who Jesus is, the gospel truth, and find out what he would say, to find our bearings, to get our bearings, to understand who we are and where we are and where God is leading us. I use that term, the rule of life. Pete Scazzaro talks about a trellis that is set up to help a vine grow and train it in the right direction. And it's not just rules for the sake of rules. A rule of life is a decision you make in your own life to guide your life in a certain direction, to cause growth to happen, and so that you would thrive. And so the encouragement is, would you establish this as a rule of life? Try it for a week. Read a verse. Read a section of verses. Read a chapter. Whatever is, is, is good for you, whatever your starting point 
would be. Maybe using the God is journal that we've been working through this year or finding a reading plan that you can follow along. I'll tell you what, even if you just open the Bible and just find a random passage to read, would you start each day in Scripture before looking at a screen? Let's find our fixed position. And then let's watch how God, the God of truth, directs your and my life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that your word is a light and a lamp into our feet, into our path. You will show us your way. You love us so much that you've given us the truth of your word to direct us. So I ask, Lord, that you would cause the distractions, all of the other messages to fade away, and that we would fix our eyes on you, a fixed point of reference that never changes, no matter what happens in the world. God, you do not change. And that we would find our hope and our peace our salvation, and our direction in you. Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you take up this challenge this week, we'd love to hear about it. I'd love to hear about it. Maybe hop on uh, social media or send us an email. You can, you can send an email or my, mail at thriveglendora.org. And I'd just love to hear, what are you learning about God? How is this affecting your life? We'd love to hear those stories. Don't forget to invite someone to join you for church next Sunday. Have a blessed week. Have a great afternoon celebrating moms. We love you. We'll see you next time.